The Creek Church is a community of believers located in Fort Worth, Texas. If you would like more information about the Creek Church, please be sure to visit our website at thecreekfw.com. Good morning. Did anybody else notice in that video that um, Adam's just sitting there holding his cell phone as he's talking? I wonder how much work he's done. I think he's been on Facebook most of the time. It's good to see you guys today. I do have a couple of announcements real quick. Um, The back to school that we're doing, I've received a couple of letters from this, and I wanted to read them to you. Um, The event hasn't happened yet, but we have given a few of those backpacks away, and I want to read these to you guys since you're the ones that gave. It says, thank you. God bless you, Pastor Matt and the church. Dear church, thank you for the school supplies and backpack. I love you. You were the best. Love, Ellie. Then I got one more. I got one more. Thank you. You were in my heart. Me? That's, that's, no, no, that's him. That's me. That's you. So me and you. Dear church, I love my new backpack. It's awesome. God bless you. I love you, Aiden. So... Thank you guys for that. That is incredible. And, uh, you know, speaking of missionaries, I, I heard that Aaron and Saba are here today. Where, where are they at? Can you raise your hand, Aaron and Saba? There they are. I've never met you guys. How's it going? We will meet after service, I promise. But Aaron and Saba, there are missionaries out in Canada. We help support those guys. So thank you so much for being here. And Saba is actually going to be teaching in a couple of weeks. So you don't want to miss that. He'll bring an incredible word for us. And uh, just a couple more things before we get started today. One, um, on the video you saw today, it talked about Kids Beach Club. I want to mention that just briefly. Kids Beach Club is an incredible opportunity to where we get to bring the gospel into the school. Northbrook Elementary has been kind enough to allow us to come in with Kids Beach Club and be there from the hours of 3 till 4. And just so you know, last year in that, it was an incredible year. We had... Probably 25, I think it was, kids that were there. Five of those kids came in already knowing the Lord. 20 of them did not. All 20 of those kids made a profession of faith by the end of Kids Beach Club. And Kids Beach Club, it's it's not just something where you come and you're trying to get them to say a prayer. I mean, we're asking questions. They have to be able to tell us the same thing. So they have to understand it very well before they before they make that prayer. So it's an incredible ministry, and anytime we get to bring the word to a school, that's a win for the body of Christ. So if you happen to be free and available during the day, like I said, it's from 3 to 4, and it'll be on Wednesdays, please pray about joining us with that. We'll need three or four people to be able to really get it going. And finally, the last bit of information, I do want to say something about Pastor Matt real quick. He's not here. He's not, no, he is here. That's not him. That's his image. But no, he is here today. But uh, the reason he isn't teaching this week is he's been preparing to go up to Canada because his eldest daughter is getting married. So, um, brother, our heart goes with you. And as a church, we're so used to seeing him on this side of the church, but he's actually going to be walking in. I know the tears are going to be flowing, and our heart and our spirit go with you, brother. So, be strong. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so today we're talking about true faith. And we're going to be in the book of Romans, finishing up Romans chapter 9, and also going some into Romans chapter 10. And uh, the scripture that we're in today, it's going to be a little bit transitional in nature. And what I mean by that is through Romans 9, up to this point, we've been talking about Israel's past and their election from God. Well, today it's going to take a turn, and it's going to be talking about Israel's present and their rejection by God, which lasts from the time of Christ up until today. 
And a theme that we're going to have to get very, very familiar with if we're going to understand the teaching today is the word righteousness. Because Paul is going to use that word in this coming chapter 10 different times. And righteousness, depending on what you're talking about, differs just a little bit within context. So we need to define righteousness today. I I told the first service, the first rule of logic, the first law of logic is identity. We need to identify what this word means so that we understand exactly what Paul's trying to tell the church in Rome. So the first thing I want to define for you is God's righteousness. Because righteousness, it kind of goes two different ways. It talks about God's righteousness, but also it talks about human righteousness. So let's get God's righteousness out of the way and understand what that is so that we can get into our righteousness God's righteousness is, and it's in your worship guide, I put it there for you, his state of moral perfection. In other words, God is an absolutely perfect being. He's never sinned. He's never going to sin. He is absolutely perfect in his morality. So when we think about God, we think about a, a God that is absolutely perfect in all ways. Now let's talk about human righteousness for just a minute. And human righteousness is actually going to be segregated into three separate areas. The first area we're going to call self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is the belief that our good morals and effort will make us right with God. In other words, if we try hard enough, if we put enough effort into our faith, if we try as hard as possible to just practice morality and do everything good then we'll arrive at a place where God accepts us and that we will be made righteous before him. That's self-righteousness. And if you've ever read Isaiah 60, specifically 64 verse 6, it says that our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. In other words, all that good that we can stack up, it falls woefully short of the righteousness of God. And some of you may have heard the analogy of like it's trying to to jump across the Grand Canyon. Some of you may be great athletes. Some of you may not be so great athletes. But no matter how far we jump, we are not coming close to making it across the Grand Canyon because righteousness talks about perfection. And our self-righteous efforts can never make us perfect or acceptable. The second one relating to human righteousness is it's called positional righteousness. Um, Some people will call it imputed righteousness. And what this is is it's right standing with God given to, the, to every believer at the moment of salvation. It's a free gift that God gives us. In other words, when we come to him by faith, it says positionally, we are made and declared righteous before God. So when God looks upon us, he sees the perfect, sinless, spotless record of Jesus. He sees perfection when he looks at us. And that's a gift that's given to every believer. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul's talking about this to the church in Corinth. And he says this, he says that he who knew no sin, talking about Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, his righteousness imputed to us and we stand positionally righteous before God. The third one is practical righteousness. Practical righteousness is after our our point of salvation This is obedience to God that results in behavioral change in our life or a change of morality in our life. It's a process of growth that every Christian goes through to grow into the image of Christ and start to live out the righteousness that he has already called us to be. 1 John 2.29 talks about this and he says, If we know that he is righteous, then we know that everyone who has been born of him 
practices righteousness. So practical righteousness is the practice of the righteousness that we are already called by God. So with all that being said, with all these different areas of righteousness understood, we're going to be able to go through now Romans chapter 9, and we're going to be able to identify exactly what it is that Paul is talking to us about today. So starting in verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So let's read this again and understand what Paul is saying. He's saying the Gentiles who did not pursue a righteousness. In other words, the Jews had the law. They knew what the righteousness of God was, and they were pursuing it, but the Gentiles weren't pursuing it. It says, but they've obtained righteousness because of faith. In other words, they stood righteous before God because of that positional righteousness that God gave them. He said, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, self-righteousness, trying to work our way up to God, they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So what we want to get to today is to try to understand what it takes to be righteous before God. What does it take for God to accept us and to be saved? What we know is our self-righteousness or our own efforts, they can't save us. Because what God demands is his perfect righteousness. In order to be saved and to be accepted by God, we, we can't just be really good. We have to be perfect. But the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So we have to have that imputed righteousness within us before we can stand before a holy God. And in verse 33, he says, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. What's he talking about? What's the stumbling stone? They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This verse is speaking of Jesus Christ, that whoever puts their faith in him, that they'll be saved. They will not be put to shame. See, that's the problem with Israel. Israel, what they had was they had the privileges of God. They had the great history with God. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had Moses. They had the covenants. But instead, they depended upon those things for their righteousness. Whereas Christ, when he came, he should have been the cornerstone. He should have been the very thing on which that faith began to be built. The very thing on which their righteousness came. But instead, they stumbled over that stone. And because of that, he moves into verse, t- verse 1 of chapter 10. And he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Don't miss what he's saying there because it's absolutely critical He's talking about a people that knew who God was. He's talking about a people who were pursuing God based upon the law. But what does he say? My heart's desire is that they be saved. Israel has been rejected by God and they are not saved. It didn't matter how much they were pursuing the law. And you know what? It didn't even matter. The next verse, it says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal or a great passion for God, but not according to knowledge. So what does it take for man to be righteous before God? It can't be our efforts that get us there because God demands perfection. But also it can't be our zeal, our passion for relationship with him. That'll never get us there either. 
It doesn't matter how much passion, how much zeal, how much you desire to have God. The central issue in salvation isn't our good works. It's not how much we try. It's not how much we want God. The central part of our salvation is Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what Paul is trying to tell us today. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, another that perfection, God's righteousness that we talked about, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own self-righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, when Christ came, it was an end of the law. And the law was never given to man, make man righteous anyway. There were three basic reasons why the law was given. One, it was to show the Israelites the holiness and the perfection of God and what his moral character looked like. Two, it was supposed to govern the morality of Israel until Christ came. It was to be a, a school teacher. And why a school teacher? Because of the third reason, it was supposed to show them that they could never keep the law that they would fall woefully short of what God required, and that would cast them upon the mercy of Christ when he came. But unfortunately, just as Paul said, they stumbled over that stumbling stone. So we see that our zeal, our passion for God, our desire for relationship with him won't save us. How much we try and how much effort we put, and even if we're a little bit better than the next guy, God's not looking for any of that. He demands perfection from us. And Paul goes on in verse 5 to say, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And in other words, you have to keep all the commandments if you're going to be made righteous by the law. But unfortunately, we were born sinners. We were sinners by nature, but we're also sinners by choice. We've sinned in the past. We've sinned recently. We're going to sin in the future because that's the nature of man. It says, if you're going to live by the commandments, you have to practice them perfectly. It'd be like me getting pulled over by an officer going 55 and a 30, and he comes to give me a ticket, and I say, whoa, whoa, hold on. I haven't killed anybody. I didn't rob any stores. I haven't done any of that stuff. How can you give me a ticket? Because you broke the law in this one area, therefore you're guilty. It's the same thing that Paul is telling us. If we fall in one part of the law, we're guilty of all of it. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What he's saying there is don't say in your heart, man, how do I attain the knowledge in order to be saved? Do I have to work myself up to heaven? Do I have to build myself up and bring Christ down to get this knowledge? Do I have to go down into the grave and bring Christ up in order to get it? How do I be saved? And he goes on to say, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, remember that, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So what makes us right before God is we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is the only way for man to be made right with God. It doesn't matter, like we said before, how much effort we put into it, how much passion we have for God. It is Jesus Christ alone that saves a man. When Jesus is talking to his disciples in the upper room, in John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. 
One of the claims of Jesus that we're called to believe if we're to confess him as Lord is that he is the only way that an unrighteous man be made righteous before God the Father. In other words, it doesn't matter how well you follow the eightfold path if you're Buddhist. It doesn't matter how well you follow the five pillars of truth within Islam. It doesn't matter how well being a Jew and given the covenants of God, you're able to keep the law. None of those things matter. It says the only thing that matters is Jesus Christ. Only through him can salvation come to man. That's it. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. What does he say to the Father? He says, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. I love that verse because you see the humanity of Christ in it. You see that he's a man that struggles with because he knows the pain that's coming. He knows what the cross entails. He knows how difficult it's going to be. But we also see a man that puts his fear to death and rises up with courage. And he fights for us, his family. And that's a beautiful thing. But what he asks is, if there's any other way, if there was any other way to God, if there was any other way to be righteous before God, then the cross becomes the biggest mistake in history because it wasn't necessary. All the father would have had to say to the son is, what are you doing down there? You didn't have to leave heaven. Come on back up here. No, they can believe in Buddha. They can, they can just be really sincere in their hearts. They can just have faith in faith. They, they don't need the cross. But the cross becomes the centerpiece of history, and not just the cross, but the resurrection, the fact that Jesus conquered death. And that word, this passage is telling us, is on our hearts, it's on our lips, it's proclaimed to you today. Jesus said in John that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That word believe in the Greek is uh, pistuyo. It's actually a verb. It's the same word as faith, which is pistis. It comes from the same Greek word. The reason that's important is because we're going to be talking about faith in just a minute. But the beautiful thing about the gospel, Romans 2.8 says, for it is by grace that we've been saved through faith. Faith and belief equated from the same word. By faith, and that's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God that he's given us, lest any man should boast. It is entirely the gift of God that comes through faith that someone is saved. And that eternal life that Jesus talked about, he goes on to define it in John 17, 3, and he says, eternal life is this. You ready? Here's the definition from Jesus. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus whom you've sent. He defines Eternal life is a relationship with him, and that's a relationship that can begin today. It's a relationship that maybe for some of you began 5, 10, 15 years ago, but it's a relationship that God calls us to. But the main point that you have to understand is there is no relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. He is the centerpiece of history, and it's only by him that this righteousness that we've been talking about can be imputed to man. Very important. So Ephesians 2.8 one of the greatest verses on salvation. It's by faith or by grace through faith. But the cool thing is the very next verse. It says, for we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus created for good works. In other words, there is an aspect of this that involves something that Christ has called us to do. So the question I wanna ask us this morning is what is true faith? If it is by faith that we are saved, then what is faith? 
This could be the greatest question in the history of mankind, and I believe that it is. What is faith and who is Jesus Christ? And what does faith in him look like? To answer that question, we're going to go in James chapter 2. And James is going to define some aspects of faith for us this morning. He says in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? And this is a rhetorical question that he's asking with the obvious answer of no, that kind of faith cannot save him. He goes on in 17 to say, Faith by itself, if it does not have works with it, it is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. And Paul's saying, or James is saying, Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, faith, true faith is going to manifest these works. And then he's going to give us a crazy example. He's going to completely polarize this for us. In in this verse, in verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one, you do well. What this is called is the Shema. And it comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 7. The Shema was a very holy profession. And it was a profession of faith of Judaism. So it involves faith. He says, You say that God is one. You have the intellectual understanding that God wants you to have. That's good. You do well. But he goes on to say, even the demons believe and they tremble. In other words, it wasn't just intellectual for the demons. It coupled with their hearts. It came into their hearts and caused them to fear. But are the demons now going to follow Christ? Absolutely not because they have corrupt hearts. Their ways aren't the ways of God. They've gone astray. So they aren't going to change. So it's not just having an intellectual understanding the right stuff and being able to spit it out. But it's also got to combine with the heart. But also the third point of it is it has to move to the will. Some call it the head, the heart, and the hand. But true faith is a surrender of our will. And it's going to result in these works. It's going to result in a transformed life. In other words, when we come to Christ, man, we bring nothing We bring nothing to the table. There is no one good. There is no one who seeks after God, Paul says. And he accepts us for who we are and for us to understand that he is the Christ. You know, different things that you believe are going to call for different areas of faith. For instance, I believe that up north there's a Canada. But that's not going to change the way I live my life, right? So different levels of things call for different levels of faith. So for instance, if somebody told me there's a new stock that's about to hit the market, and if you put your money in it, man, it's going to blow up and you'll be a millionaire. If I truly believe that, if, I, if it truly goes into here, it's going cre- to cause me to go out and buy that stock. Or if, maybe a better analogy would be, imagine if we lived next to a volcano or something. It's, it's been hot like a volcano lately. But imagine if we lived next to it. And somebody all of a sudden comes to your house and say, the the volcano has just erupted. And your future is a fiery, burning death. Now, if I believe them, it's going to cause me to grab the family that I love and to flee and to run. You see, true faith, once that belief comes, it's going to manifest itself into works. And that's what James is talking about here. Some, Some more examples about that. Think about the woman with the issue of blood in the New Testament. When Jesus is going around and he's healing so many, the woman with the issue of blood, she had heard some facts about Jesus. She even believed that Jesus could heal her. But because she believed it and because she had a desire to go see him, did that make her well? It didn't make her well. What made her well? What made her well is getting up, walking to Jesus and grabbing the hem of his garment. And what does he tell her at that point? Daughter, your faith has made you well. 
The faith was the act of going over there and grabbing a hold. So it's vitally important that we understand it's not just having some facts about Jesus. Because Jesus, when he came, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you desire me, you'll do this. Why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I say? In other words, to have faith in Jesus means it's just like the fire, the molten lava coming towards the house. If I have a faith, I'm going to jump aboard and I'm going to go. So our faith absolutely carries with it the idea that after we make that profession, that God is going to start doing something in our lives. And James is going to say that exact same thing right after this in James chapter 2. And I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. He says essentially this. We know in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham believed God and he was declared righteousness. He was declared righteous. He had that positional, imputed righteousness. God saw him and said, you're good. But then James goes on to say later in Genesis 22, we see that God has promised that through Isaac, all the nations of the world have been blessed, will be blessed. But then he calls him to go sacrifice to Isaac on Mount Moriah. And what, is, what does Abraham do? He takes Isaac up, up to the Mount Moriah and he's going to sacrifice him. The reason he's able to do that, James has said, because of his absolute faith in what God has already spoken, he truly believed God. He truly believed that through Isaac, all the nations would be blessed. And he had enough faith to think, you know what? God is going to have to raise him back up from the dead because he's already made me a promise. And James is saying, that's true faith. That work didn't come until later, but he's created us. We're his workmanship in Christ Jesus unto good works that he's prepared beforehand for us to do. And every once in a while, people will ask me the question of, it really seems, man, like Paul, he's all about faith, 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 faith. In James, he's all about works, 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 works. These two guys are duking it out, and they're fighting, they're standing toe-to-toe. Which is it? It helps to understand that these guys are both addressing different issues. They're standing back-to-back fighting, but they're fighting those people that are coming in. For Paul, he's fighting the, the lawgivers, the Judaizers coming in and saying, no, you have to become a Jewish proselyte. You have to follow the law first, and then you can be saved. And he's like, no, you don't have to do anything. It is of Christ alone that we're saved. But James is talking to a church that they're, they're not, they haven't done anything. They haven't manifested any works in their life. And he says, no, your faith is manifested and made real by the works in which you do. So these two guys are back-to-back fighting the same thing. So just to illustrate that, I want to read to you what Paul tells Titus in the book of Titus. Titus was an elder and an overseer at this church. And listen to what he tells him in chapter 1, verse 16, talking about certain people. It says, they profess to know God. They say they know God, but they deny him by their works. He goes on to further talk about this in chapter 3. And this is an amazing set of verses. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, when Jesus appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. There was no self-righteousness. There was nothing we brought to the table, he said. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And he goes on in verse 8, and check out this verse. He says, the saying is trustworthy. In other words, believe what I'm going to tell you and trust it. The saying is trustworthy. And Titus, I want you to insist on these things to anyone you talk to. Titus, you're an overseer of the church. Insist on this when you talk to people. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God 
may be careful to devote themselves to good works. In other words, our works are made real by the things in which we do. Um, Mr. K. Wood talked to us a couple of weeks ago, and he went through 2 Peter chapter 1 with us. And in that section, it says, Make every effort to add to your faith virtue, knowledge, brotherly affection, and love. Um, Peter's telling us there, make sure that you're pursuing to do do these things. And if you do, you're going to be effective in your Christian walk and you will make your calling and your election sure. This is an absolutely vital part of Christianity. Think of the, the parable of the sower when Jesus is talking and he says that a certain sower goes out and he starts to throw seed. Some of it falls on the wayside. Some of it falls upon rocky soil. Some falls among thorns and some falls upon good soil. Jesus goes on later to define what he's talking about. And he said, the soil in which we're talking about is the condition of a man's heart. When that seed comes in, if there's too many cares in the other areas of life, it's going to choke it out and there will be no faith. In other words, it's not about adding Jesus to your spiritual life. It's about adding Jesus to your life, that he becomes the center point of all things, that he is over everything. There's not a religious sector, a work sector, and a family sector. We're not to compartmentalize our lives. But Jesus is to reign and rule over all of it. And he says in that seed that falls on that kind of heart, on that kind of soil, it produces. In other words, something comes after it. And some produce 30, 60, 100-fold crop for God. God has called us not just to believe in him, but also to trust him, to follow him, and to let him take us to those heights in life that he wishes for us to go. And I I feel like I really need to talk about the the issue that's on all of our minds right now. Trent, does that mean that when I come to faith in Christ, I'm going to be perfect? Absolutely not. There's going to be periods of struggle. There's going to be periods. This is a long process in which God takes us from being an infant where we're stumbling and falling all the time and crawling to the place to where we're an adult in our Christian faith. When I look back 15 years ago, my first five years with the Lord, I see addiction. I see all manner of terrible things in my life in those first five years that the Lord was working me out of. I'm ashamed of that guy. I'm ashamed of who I was 10, 15 years ago. But you know what? God was faithful to complete that work in me, and he's still doing it. And even Paul himself said, I have not yet attained it, brethren, but this one thing I do, I continue to press forward. My hope and my prayer for my own life is that in 15 more years from today, I look back at the man I am today, and I'm ashamed of him too because of the heights at which Christ continues to take us. The Holy Spirit desires to make us like Jesus And to go out into the world with his heart and what he wills for us. That doesn't mean we won't fall into seasons of sin. Where our life for a while is characterized by sin and we're in a prodigal moment. But Christ is faithful in those times to pull us up out of that. John 10.10, it tells us this. It tells us that Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly that relationship with him. That's the crux of why we're here. That's why God has put us on this planet. I think we have a tendency to look at that abundant life and miss, though, the first half of what Jesus was telling us in John 10.10. He said that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. In other words, there's a dark entity that rules this universe. And every time we pick up a 
a, a newspaper or watch the evening news, we see the effects of this sin and this fallen angel and what he's had on our world. For some of us, he's robbed us. Maybe you're in a position right now to where the enemy's taken from you. He's taken from your family and you feel like you're in a downward spiral and your family's going with you. Christ offers you this morning his hand to pick you back up out of that and for it to be time for us to fight, to fight for our families, to fight for our wives, men, to fight for our children, to fight for our church and to fight for Jesus Christ, to fight for ourselves. He calls us to rise up into that, to recognize what the world has put before us, to have faith in him and to move forward with him. So in the Holocaust, it didn't happen in Nazi Germany. It didn't begin there. It manifested into the physical there. But the Holocaust, Holocaust, by the way, that word means sacrifice upon an altar. The sacrifice of God's people upon an altar didn't begin in Germany. It began, it began in a garden, in the Garden of Eden, where this fallen angel tricks mankind into falling. But Christ has now offered us a way out of that, and he defeated that, and he stepped on the head of the serpent in the next garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And by placing our faith in him, he calls us into new life. If you're struggling with anything, if you need prayer this morning, instead of going into the lobby, I'm going to be at the front of the platform here. And I would love the opportunity to pray with you. If you feel like you've been beaten up, you're bloodied in battle, and you just need prayer, come pray. If you have a victory, something amazing that God's done in your life, and you've seen the enemy put under your feet, come tell me about it, man. Let's pray about it. Let's rejoice together. But if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never given him your life, don't miss an opportunity today to give it to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the love that you have for this world. God, that you sent your son, that he would die for everyone, for all of us. And I pray, God, if there's anyone in the room that has never made that confession of faith, Father, that you would move upon their hearts And Lord, just like the woman with the issue of blood, that they would rise and they would come to you just seeking to touch the hem of your garden garment and making that profession of faith, God. Thank you, Spirit of God, for being here with us, for reminding us of the gospel. The Lord, we bring nothing to the table that you are the centerpiece of our life and you've saved us not for anything that we've done, but God, because you are holy, you are good, and you desire us. And even though the enemy came, and he's stolen, he's killed, and he's destroyed. Lord, you left heaven, and you came, and you've lifted us up. We rejoice in you this morning, God, and we thank you for all that you've done. And we pray for greater and greater life change. Father, we love you. We thank you so much. And we pray to you this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, thank you so much for being here with us today. And I I did forget one announcement from earlier. Um, Our church has been growing so much, and I just want to speak to the core for a second. Um, As our ministries have grown, last week we had 16 kids in one of the pre-K and 18 in the other. It's just exploding back there, and we're so thankful to God for that. But we desperately need some help back there. People ask me from time to time, "Why why don't you just have everybody that has a kid back there just serve once every month or two months? You'd have enough. Because we desire a passion to be put on the heart of people because we just don't watch kids back there. We're trying to pour the gospel into them. So please pray about that. And if that's an area that you could step up, we would highly appreciate it. Thank you guys so much and have a great week. 
Thank you for listening to the Creek Church Podcast. If you would like more information about us, please visit our website at thecreekfw.com. Thank you.